Welcome back to Creative Chit Chat. I'm Ryan McLeod and this is episode number 15. This week it's the turn of Katie Guthrie. She's an artist and an illustrator. She's worked on a whole wide range of projects from small scale stuff like uh, whiskey balls to snowboard graphics and then some absolutely massive pieces from walls and rooms to gigantic outdoor pieces and doors as well. And she's got this amazing sense of humour and attitude that, that sort of runs through all the work that she does. And it's just super fun and really vibrant and interesting and entertaining as well. If you're not familiar with her work, go and check out her Instagram, which is at underscore KMG underscore it's well worth a look and you'll get a real feel for her work as she's talking about it as well and the link is in the show notes but yeah I met Katie for the first time at Pitchy Kucha a couple of years ago and we eventually got round to doing a project together just Christmas past and some of you might have heard about it it was the the wrapping paper that I plugged on here where we illustrated a whole bunch of Christmasified wrappers and then screen printed the wrapping paper um, and did a bunch of Christmas cards as well. Through the success of that, we set up a little print shop, um, which is called Slobs and Blobs. So there's another little project that Katie talks about in the podcast that we're going to be launching hopefully relatively soon. Katie also recently joined Fleet Collective, so she's now up there. Um, she's also just brought her Resograph printing machine up to Fleet Collective. And if you're not sure what Resograph printing is, it's definitely worth a Google. Um, but it's a really sort of environmentally friendly, low-cost, high-speed way of printing. It uses soy-based inks, and you sort of layer up like you would do screen printing. Um, and you get the most amazing colours. She's got this beautiful uh, floral pink amongst a bunch of other colours. And compared to screen printing, it's really low cost because it goes through, it sort of looks like a, a photocopier, if you like, and it, it fires them off really quickly. So it's a sort of quick and efficient way of doing it. And it gets you this really nice aesthetic that because it, it's going through so fast and it's mechanical, you get a little bit of printer error. So you, it's a little bit offset and that really gives it a lot of charm. So if you are interested in sort of chatting to Katie about that or getting some print work done, she is taking orders. And you can get all the details for that on tacopress.com, which is T-A-K-O-P-R-E-S-S dot com. And yeah, she's taking orders right now, so yeah, give her a shout. Just one little thought before we jump into the podcast, and that's about something that I watched this week. Uh, there's a documentary series that's come out on Netflix called Abstract. It follows eight, I think, designers around their sort of day-to-day lives and dips into some of their projects and they've got a whole range from illustrators, graphics, photographer, architect, interior designer and really interesting documentaries. So I've sort of binge watched it in a week so I can highly recommend them. So that's my sort of little thought for the week. Yeah, go and check out Abstract on Netflix. But let's get into the podcast. This is episode number 15 with Katie Guthrie. I studied painting uh, at Grey School of Art. I went 
to art school, fresh out of school at 17, which looking back, I kind of do regret now, but when you're a child going through the system, you know you want to go, that's all you want to do, it's all you've really planned to do to that point. So you kind of fall into going to uni straight out of school. Graduated in 2006 and then spent a few months just kind of floating around, not really doing much, <laughs> avoiding getting a job. And then got a job for my local, well, in my local snowboard store where I kind of worked part-time as a student because um, snowboarding is a massive part of my life next to kind of art and creativity. It's kind of the next priority. So for me, that worked well. It enabled me to work in a job I enjoyed and that there was great benefits like getting to go on board test trips, getting to test product and getting discount on the product that I like to use. But it also meant that my job was at my job. So I worked there 10 till six and then the rest of the time was my own time. So I didn't have to take any work home so I could dedicate my personal time to my personal practice so I could still be making work in that time, which I think is really important if you still do want to make work is getting that balance. Did you have a vision when you finished art school, like where you wanted to go and what you wanted to do? <laughs> Not really. I think, you know, I decided at the age of four that I was going to be an artist. I don't remember this being announced, but my parents remind me all the time that I said, you know, I just want to be an artist. That's all I want to do. And that's all I really kind of focused on. And in my mind, to get to that point, all I'd really planned to was going to art school. So leaving art school at 21 and then being like, hmm. And then you do realise in your latter years of art school that most artists generally don't really get to where they're going to be in their careers until they're kind of late 30s. So you leave art school with this kind of <laughs> realisation you don't know what the hell you're going to do with your life. You just know that you want to make art. So for me, I just had to find a way that I could continue to make art or be creative in some shape or form. That was just my kind of priority. Um, it's the kind of cliche I think that all creatives, they just have to be making something and if they don't, they don't feel fulfilled. So for me, that was just my priority, having the time to make art. And by that point in my kind of, I guess, creative career, I was dabbling in a few different weird things in the sense that my painting had turned into knitting. <laughs> I decided I wanted to knit a room because I, I don't know why I was just really enjoying that exploration of wool <laughs> and the, the relationship it had with paint so that was kind of my one of my first shows after leaving art school was knitting an entire gallery space and throwing paint all over it which is really fun I got I won an award that funded that project so that was really cool so that kind of gave me a glimpse of how it was to work uh, independently as an artist out with the womb of art school, so to speak. And I think, again, your practice changes. When I was at art school, I was making these six foot by six foot paintings. That's just not practical when you leave art school. I did have a studio for a small amount of time with a friend, Sarah Stanley, who ran Project Slogan Gallery in Aberdeen. So we had a small studio space in the back of that gallery for a while, but then that didn't last very long. Um, so just the, you know, the, the reality of making larger pieces of work wasn't ideal. So I kind of started doing more illustrative work, which is actually what I enjoyed doing more as a kid. I did a lot more illustration work as a kid and I was going to apply to do illustration, but in the end changed and went towards fine art because I really enjoyed painting. So I kind of got more into illustration. Which is kind of funny because it's like, surely painting could still be <laughs> illustration, but maybe that's yeah. just the, the constraints that it's put in the sort of little pigeonholes that... You, you will be a fine artist, you will be yes. an illustrator. I think almost, it depends on your lecture. I think a lot of lecturers with, I think a lot of us have experienced lectures with the fine art institutions that 
you know, in the painting department in Grace School of Art, when I was there, definitely there was a push very much so to be painting. You know, you could go and do a bit of screen printing if you wanted, and you could do kind of sculptural 3D work, but there was an emphasis of, we want to see you getting stuck into painting, which is fair enough. But then you don't see many painters graduating with illustrative work. I have seen a few of late, actually, whose work's been phenomenal. But, there, you know, everybody seems to almost go down the same abstract path, which I do feel is important as well. So I think when I, when I started art school, I, I would laugh at abstract and think it was a pile of shit because I was naive and young and arrogant. And then when I grew and learnt more, I understood more about painting uh, as a skill. I understood how difficult abstract actually is and how much more of a challenge it is. But then I really started getting into that abstract side of pattern design Ge geometric kind of composition, things like that, and I did actually enjoy that more, which is the direction I went into. So then to go back to the illustrative work and then combine those two, so I combine my exploration with colour, my painting work always focused quite heavily on our relationship with colour and whether we could engage emotion through simple forms of colour rather than having kind of a recognisable form. So to blend that with the illustration work and use those colour palettes I'd explored in my abstract work or those abstract designs and patterns and taking them into the illustrative work became quite fun. And I think the two worked quite well together. So I think that, that which is quite an interesting part of my journey, I think, was realising that I could take my illustration seriously because for a long time I didn't. I'd always do it like I'd always be like drawing little doodles of my lectures. And then me and my mates would be laughing about them. <laughs> you know, it wasn't really anything I took seriously until I realised that I actually really enjoyed it. And I started taking it more seriously and taking myself more seriously and exploring it more. Which kind of led me towards more the more design work I was doing, I'm guessing. You know, I think a lot of fine artists realise they're going to have to dabble into the world of design if they want to make any money. Yeah, it seems that way, whereas art is always a struggle um, yeah. And, yeah, it's difficult to sell and it's difficult to get funding. Yeah. Whereas design seems to be a relatively similar discipline and it's applying some of the same principles just in a slightly different way, but it's just now it's much more marketable and yeah, yeah you can easily make a, a healthy career off of it. That's it. I, I totally think the lines are being blurred in terms of art and design now. I think when I went to art school, there was a very definite, these people are designers, these people are fine artists. And the two shall never mix. <laughs> and whereas now, I think it's quite interesting. I think that the internet has is kind of blown up since I went to art school. And your exposure to so many different forms of art and what artists are doing is a lot more accessible. So you become to think, I think, in a different way. You're not just stuck in the painting department or the fine art department of a library going through those kind of same books. Of course, you could go into the design department if you really wanted to. But I just think people are being exposed a lot more creatively which is making us all think differently creatively as well. A lot of us now don't think, right, I just want to do that for print or I want to do this. We think, well, what would that look like on the side of a building or what would that look like on a beer can or what would that look like on a canvas? And it's a lot more exciting. I hate when people ask you, what are you, an artist, are you an illustrator, are you a designer? Because I think that immediately sticks you in a box. Mm -hmm. And then they expect certain things of you whereas if you kind of just do everything it's a lot more interesting it's a lot more engaging but then it's someone meets you for the first time and they ask you that i think it's more about them trying to understand who you are and in the, in the terms of the things that they already understand if that makes sense mm. 
So I, I know what a designer is. I know what an illustrator is. I know yeah. what an artist is. Which one are you? Yeah. Then I can put you in that little box. Exactly. And it makes me comfortable with what you do. <laughs> exactly. When the actual fact is, okay, so 10% of the time I'm an illustrator, 20% I'm a designer. And yeah. Yeah, that changes all the time. So. That's it. That's it. I mean, you know, I just say artist because generally that's yeah. what I identify more as. But yeah, no, so it's really interesting. So, so I totally went on a tangent there, but basically, uh, so yeah, so I guess that was my story out of art school to where I am now. It's, it's just uh, art school gave me the confidence to kind of stand up on my own two feet, go out there, get the painting knowledge, which then gave me the capabilities and understanding to explore other areas of art and design and then how to apply that those skill sets already had into other methods. So when you were working at the shop, mm-hmm. um, what sort of stuff were you doing on the site? So the shop, um, I was doing a lot of painting, just in my own time. I got fairly sick of the uh, the fine art kind of networking, I guess, would be the <laughs> the scene, so to speak. It's quite cliquey across, well, like everywhere, but in Scotland and, and in particular, it, it just tired me, so I decided just to paint for myself for a while and just not exhibit and just do my own thing, which fulfilled my needs as an artist. Uh, you do kind of, I still went to exhibitions and a lot of friends, you know, I think it's important to do go to exhibitions and support people. And, but yeah, the scene just kind of tired me, so I did become almost introverted for a while there for a couple of years, just making my work for myself and not necessarily putting it out there. And then I started to get more kind of small pieces of work for the shop, like my boss was wanting me to do some stuff for the website, so a bit of design work for the website, and then some friends would be like, oh, we need some stuff done for like zines or magazines, can you do something, or a poster, or are we painting for an exhibition? So I was kind of slowly getting back into making work and putting it out there. And if that was sort of combining already, like sort of your interests with snowboarding and That's other it. things like that, then it becomes a sort of appealing profession yeah. to want to do more of that. That's it. I think it was a learning process as well because I had to learn. I never touched Photoshop or Illustrator or any software art school. Um, I just painted and drew my sketchbook. I was, you know, or knitted. <laughs> so it was that kind of challenge to get a copy of Photoshop, learn how to use it. That was I really enjoyed learning things. So that was cool as well to to be able to make stuff in a different way was quite exciting. Um, when I look back at some of the stuff I made. Now it's hilarious, it's so naive, and it was that classic drop shadow, oh, you know, like multicolor effect. It was the classic errors that all designers yeah, <laughs> slag off. But it was super fun, and I really enjoyed it. So it forced me to get out of my comfort zone. And although it was just things like posters, or well, Instagram didn't exist then, but in the latter years, like we photos for the Instagram account or banners for the website, it still pushed me out of my comfort zone and taught me some new skills. So that was kind of cool. And yeah, I think I've got a lot of contacts out of working in a snowboard shop as well in the snowboard industry that have opened doors for me to be able to do things like do kind of illustrations and posters for some like brands and distribution companies. So that's been really fun as well and giving me opportunities that perhaps wouldn't have existed had I not worked in the snowboard industry within the UK. So that's really cool as well. So at what point did you decide that Working in the shop just wasn't for you anymore? Um, I think definitely, well, I had my son, so I had my son two years ago, he wasn't, he was a bit of a surprise, <laughs> uh, to say the least, so 
that was a big changing point. I think I was, even when I was pregnant, I was in complete denial and I was naive. I was like, I'm going to go back to work two days after he's born kind of thing. Go to work full time. And then when you, when you have a kid, your perspective, your perspective just completely changes. Everybody says it, you know, it's your priorities change. Everything changes because you've got this little thing that suddenly depends on you that you just kind of want to be around all the time because they're awesome um, you know so you want to see them kind of grow so that definitely changed I went down to two days a week at the shop rather than five so th- already that kind of was a big difference for me I was at home a lot more I was, although I was looking after my son I was at the same time making more work because he slept quite a lot for the first year of his life and I'm awful at sleeping I'm a bit of an insomniac so I would just be sketching or doing stuff on Photoshop or Illustrator or whatever. And then again, I was just exhausted. I was getting, because I was sketching more in those four days where I was at home and getting more jobs creatively from being at home, the workload was piling up there, but then I was having to go to the shop as well and I was just getting exhausted. It was just getting too much and it got to the point where I had to just make a decision of what I wanted to invest my time in. Was it my creative career or was it working in the snowboard shop? And the creative career had to just be the one because that's what I'd always wanted to do. It, it made more sense as well from a working mother perspective. I could work around my child. Um, so that was a big plus as well. But I, I, never, I never became bored of working in a snowboard shop. I never thought, right, I'm over this. I always loved it, which I think people were surprised by coming into a snowboard shop and finding a mother who's 31 years old, <laughs> who's quite happy working in a snowboard shop. But I, I did love it. So there was never a point I was like, yeah, I'm done. It was just a natural stage I'd come to in my life where I had to make a decision. And yeah. If you, if you didn't have the illustration mm-hmm. at that time, do you think you still would have been happy in the snowboard shop? Yeah, probably. Yeah. I, if, I, if I had no other talents, then <laughs> yeah. I think people like, I, I always think it's funny. I remember being at school and I never wanted to do, I bloody hated maths. I just thought it was shite and I was, I was dyslexic and dyspraxic. So for me, school was, it wasn't a struggle because I found ways to deal with it. But, you know, in certain subjects, I just, they were hell on earth for me. And I just, my way of coping with something is if I can't do it, and I'll try to a point to do it. If I can't do it, I'll just kind of give up and not put much effort in. <laughs> when you're in school, and I remember she used to get heckled by teachers. And I remember my teacher saying to me, you know, you're going to amount to nothing. You're going to end up working in a shop the rest of your life, which I always find really interesting. Like, why is that an insult? Why is that a bad thing to work in a shop the rest of your life? I think any job is worthy because you're putting the graft in and you're, you're making money and you're trying to be self-sufficient. There's also the irony there that I did almost end up working in a shop for the rest of my life, so she was kind of right. <laughs> but um, yeah, I probably would. I mean, as I said, it's heaps of perks. You get to go on free holidays and snowboard, and you know that that's cool. And so you leave the shop, and yeah. then you start to build up work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How was that? Yeah, it was good. Um, yeah, it was really good. I mean, I'd had a few good breaks before I left the shop. I was lucky enough to, to be asked to design three illustrations for a snowboard brand. So that kind of got my name out there a bit more. So a few people were... And I'd, I'd worked on a few larger exhibitions and large-scale murals, which then people took note of, and I was getting more commissions to do things like that. So, so yeah, so it just kind of organically built up. I'm quite lucky in a sense that 
until very recently, work's kind of come to me. I've not really had to put the feelers out there too much, which is, I totally appreciate, is a very rare and positive situation to be in. So I was quite lucky that the workflow just kind of kept coming in till, till now. I mean, I've still got a few projects on the go, but it's only now as a, as a freelance, I'm, I'm having to think about putting CVs out there and kind of actively look out for tenders and, and go for work. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I have been quite fortunate that I've not had to work too hard to get work. It's been quite organic. I want to talk a little bit about your style. Do you think you have a, a distinct and recognisable style? I, at the moment, no. I don't. <laughs> I think my illustration style is something that's bothered me for a while. I remember... So when I first, if you if you compare my early illustration to my illustration now, it's quite different. And that comes down to a lot of the fact that my early illustration stuff was heavily influenced by some illustrators I was really into, to the point where it was quite obvious these illustrators were influenced my work. It, it wasn't on purpose; it was subconscious. You know, I think I was reacting to things I was liking to see, and it got to the point people were saying to me, mm, "Your work is very much like this person's work," which again we're all used to as artists. But it made me consciously think, well, at the time I was like, that's how I draw, I can't help it, you know. But it made me very aware of the fact that I really want to define my own style to the point where people look at my work and think, right, well, that's Katie Guthrie's work. That's not so-and-so's work, that's not so-and-so's. But again, I think, you know, when you go to art school, you get used to comparing your work to other people because that's what people naturally do. Mm -hmm. They have to compare in order to feel safe, almost. So I think my work has progressed a lot. I think that's also a lot for me kind of learning more about illustration, kind of educating myself a bit more, trying out different ways, trying out different skills and methodologies, finding what works for me, because I did feel like a bit of a chameleon for a while that I know I can draw technically quite well. So if people commission me to do certain things, I'll almost fall into different styles for different jobs mm-hmm. to suit their needs, which is fine if you're doing commercial illustration because you're you're fitting into what they want but for a personal style it doesn't have as much flow so you feel it's important to have that really defined personal style and then be able to adapt and change that to whatever commercial brief comes in (laughs) not necessarily i mean like some people will be employed because they have a recognizable style (laughs) that people want to use and you don't necessarily have to chop and change i think there are artists out there whose whose style is so recognizable that's why they are commissioned I think for me, I was just feeling personally quite, although I didn't notice it, maybe a bit lost and I didn't, I I was just kind of drawing without really thinking. Whereas now I'm much more aware of whether my work flows or not and whether people would look at five different pieces I've done and recognise that that was my work. Um, Other people, sometimes I think people say I'm just being too hard on myself because the majority of time if I do work, people do know it's mine and they'll come and say to me, oh, we saw that thing you've done. So it could just be me being paranoid. I think once you've had a bad experience with people literally trolling you, telling you that you're ripping off people, it does put you on edge and makes you paranoid that perhaps you are doing that and that you have to reevaluate. But I, I again, I, I sometimes think that's just creatives who are very hard on ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's interesting because every one mm-hmm. of the illustrators I've asked, if mm-hmm. they have a recognisable style, they've all said no. Yes. <laughs> Whereas I've said to them all that I could definitely walk along the street, I would identify that that is your work. Yeah. I mean, that maybe that's because I'm 
close to it. Okay, if there were a thousand examples on the wall of a similar style, yeah, um, maybe I wouldn't be able. To. But in the context of Dundee and mm-hmm. sort of Scotland and the sort of circles that we all sort of go in the events we go to, that illustration style is, is definitely distinct, and especially yeah. in, your, in your case and, and the others that I've talked to as well, and that there is a definite style and I think in your stuff there's definitely an attitude there. yes I think that the with my stuff it's not so much perhaps down to the drawing it's probably perhaps more down to the the attitude or the color palette things mm. things like that which do build up a piece so if you were to describe your style yes um I always use the same words um <laughs> I think my, my my work is quite a strange combination of I am a very cynical person. I'm very cynical, I'm very sarcastic, but at the same time I'm quite an annoying optimist. I'm I'm quite a positive person, despite being a total you know, being very cynical. I, I like to think rather than dwell on negative things, I like to try and think about things positively, whether they're you know, they're utterly shit or not. I try and put a positive spin in it or laugh about it. So it's kind of like happy but raw, I guess. It's it's quite youthful as well. I think a lot of people, a lot of people, for some reason, think I'm a man <laughs> from my work. I don't know why. I just I guess they perhaps don't expect women to be as vulgar or um, I don't know. People always think that my work is done by a man, so um, I've always found that quite interesting. So yeah, I guess male, <laughs> raw, <laughs> and youthful at the same time. And so where do you think that like the attitude and the, the sort of the direction and the humour of your personal style, mm-hmm. where do you think that comes from? I think it just comes as me as a person. I don't take life too seriously. Obviously you have to at points, but you know, generally I, I try and look on the bright side of life. But I do have a dark sense of humour. I guess it's just come from my, my upbringing, um, my parents always encouraged me and my brother to question everything and and experience as much as possible, um, work hard but have fun. They were never driven by money. They both had very good careers and they're very successful in the professions that they work in. But they were never driven, they were driven by their enjoyment, not not by making money at the end of the day. And I think that's kind of translated to me personally and how I see life and just having fun. My whole family have got a pretty good sense of humour. So I think growing up in that environment surrounding yourselves with people with similar sense of humour. Uh, it just kind of translates mm-hmm. into my work, I guess. I once got asked about some of the work that I'd done and that, I mean, some of the projects I'd create are quite sweary because <laughs> I, I just quite enjoy saying fucking bro. It's just quite entertaining. Like the, the style and the tone of, of some of your work is quite similar and that you use the word vulgar. Yeah. <laughs> Which, nah, that's maybe a bit extreme. Someone asked me you know, a while back, does that style and that tone that you take with some of your work, does that not put off clients? <laughs> That's something I often think about actually. There's been a few jobs recently I, I've put in applications for and then I've gone to my Instagram and you know the, there's been somebody farting out a multicoloured poop or something or yeah there's been the world go fuck yourself you know and that's something I'm always like oh do you think that's a good thing but then I guess I don't know again once you, when you're at art school you get so used to being in this environment where people swear, people are honest, people are just themselves. 
And that's what makes artists and creatives who they are, is the, is the transparency and the openness. And you kind of get over these taboos that everybody's still hung up on. I still don't understand the big deal about swearing and sex, but it's still there. It still mm-hmm. exists. I think it's a very UK thing. I think if we lived in, say, Berlin or Amsterdam, people wouldn't think twice about it. But we're very <laughs> stiff up our lips still in Britain. People like still are a bit kind of freaked out by vulgarities and, you know, swear words. I mean, I'm, I'm a bit of a hypocrite because I don't swear in front of my son and I tell him off for, well, he's only two. <laughs> he does copy some swear words and I've told him off. So I guess I'm a hypocrite in that sense. But there is a time and a place. Uh, yeah, sometimes I do wonder, but at the same time, I'm like, well, do I want to work for somebody that... Well, that was sort of my answer, was that yeah. if someone's really turned off by that, then they're not right to work together. Yeah. I don't really want to be tiptoeing around someone that's going to be offended if I slip a swear word. And uh, as you say, it's got to be a bit more honest. Yeah, I think so. I hate this like the assumption that Scottish people swear and are rude and, and drunk all the time. But I think in general, the Scottish language, we do be swearing in a kind of more joking manner. <laughs> it, it is kind of more normal in Scotland to be like that. And um, I think swear words sound great in a Scottish accent. I yeah, think I think it's it, funny. There's rolling R's. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that's it. At the end of the day, it's all in context. I think if, if, it, if it's got a humorous tone to it, I don't see the problem. If it's aggressive and it's violent and it's promoting violence or, or aggression, then yeah, that's not cool. But if it's used within humour, I think it's, it's fine. I don't see the big deal. So yeah, so maybe I have lost work. I don't know, but... <laughs> Oh well, if I have, I guess. <laughs> then that should be, really, I suppose it's a first filter. Mm. In a way of, you only, ideally you would only do work that you wanted to do and that you enjoyed doing. Yeah. So maybe that's a, a sort of self-defence mechanism for the, the people that you shouldn't work with. <laughs> and it's an automatic filter. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I, I was actually quite interested because um, it was you actually told me you saw one of my paintings that was purchased by the local church. If they're cool, then that, you know. Yeah, do you think they've seen your back? Who knows? <laughs> I did wonder. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, if they're cool with it, then, you know. <laughs> so let's talk a bit about bigger pieces. So, like, yeah. sort of murals and. Mm-hmm. Because you've done a few, like, walls and... Done a few walls now, yeah. Um, so I kind of, like like I said earlier, um, I've always enjoyed working big. I've always found it more interesting, working big, because I think the scrutiny, you know, people can scrutinise your work to a different level than if it's tiny. That's one thing you learn quite early on when you're painting. You can kind of get away with, like, you know, putting slightly less kind of... You don't have to. I mean, some people do small technical drawings that are amazing, but when you're working smaller, generally you can get away with kind of smaller kind of gestures rather than perhaps doing the same amount as if you were to do something big where people can scrutinise it to another level and you have to put more detailing perhaps. Um, so I've always kind of enjoyed bigger pieces just in general when I go to galleries, site specific pieces, huge bits just kind of standing and imagining well how did how did somebody make this? It's massive. What, what goes into that? So it's always been something I've been interested in street art as a child growing up seeing graffiti and street art and all that kind of stuff. So the first kind of wall that I drew on legally was my friend Mike Hughes, who also worked at the snowboard shop, Borderline, that I worked at the time, and one of our friends, Needle, or Neil Kellis, 
we worked together on a show called the Hell Yeah Illustration Show, where we went into a disused union, student union in Aberdeen, and got to draw all over the walls. And we did this just in monochrome. We just focused on using black marker pens and paint and drawing on the walls. And sorry, Lee, Ugly People was there as well. So that was my first kind of experience. That's his. Big. That's his name. Is sort of is, is, it just yeah. sounded weird. Lee, you ugly said. people. Yeah, is uh, is handle or yeah, it wasn't or just you and a bunch name. of ugly people. It was, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't a bunch of ugly people. God, they were, they were very beautiful people. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so we basically collaborated on this on this wall, and it was the first time any of us had really done anything of that nature. Because we all, at the start, we're like, it'll be great, we'll all like collaborate, interweave. And what happened was, in reality, everybody just picked a wall and drew. And then, after we'd drawn a piece, people would then weave in and out. So that was quite interesting to see how that worked. Um, and a really positive response to that show. I mean, what we did as well, each, each illustrator or artist in the show also made two prints, which we then screen printed and gave away for free. Um, because we, we were... We basically wanted to promote art and creativity and make it accessible. So we wanted to take street art into an indoor space and let people take away art because art is expensive. Even cheap art is expensive to some people. So we really want to be like, here's some free art, here's some badges, you know, here's some free prints we've made by hand, take them away. And it, the response was like really amazing. It was overwhelming. And we realized we all worked really well together. Uh, particularly me and Mike. So then me and Mike worked on, after that we got asked uh, by a local bar if we wanted to do their interior. So we did we did that. That was a really cool job. That was quite high pressure because it was the usual every time a bar opens they seem to have a two week deadline. I've got no idea why. They just seem to go, we've got two weeks! So you've got two weeks to draw a mural. I have absolutely no idea how this, yeah. how that process works. Okay. So if you have to do a mural in two weeks, I'm assuming that from the tone of voice, it's a really short period of time. Yeah, depending on the scale. So what? Yeah. So what would the process be from? Okay, I've got a bar. It's open in two weeks. I need the back wall done. So our well, I I don't know about everybody else's process. <laughs> our process would be go would be to go into the space, check out the size of the wall, discuss. You know, sometimes people would be like, draw what you want. And most of the time people would be like, this is the theme of the bar, this is kind of, they'd have a visual in mind um, that we then sit and discuss, like, right, this is what we'd kind of, so for that bar in particular, it was a kind of South American Latin vibe kind of bar, they wanted it to be like a, a rum shack kind of thing, so they wanted like the carnival kind of theme, so we decided we were going to draw like a carnival scene with different creatures and like guys in their speed. So I'd, I'd been travelled around South America and one of the images that stuck in my mind was this man roaming around the streets in a pair of speedos in Rio, just like in the middle of the city in a pair of red speedos with his belly hanging over and I was like, we have to put him in it. So all these kind of things just and just kind of translated into our ideas. Uh, but then, I, you know, as I said to you before, me and Mike, and and laterally, I work on a few. I've worked on a few murals by myself. Now, we're very organic people, which is quite a posh word, I guess, to use to describe us as being quite kind of just uh, last. Not last minute, but we like to react at the time, which can freak some people out. We like to go into space and just start drawing on the wall, because you can sit and you can sketch, but it's never going to be the same as as it is on the wall. Some people that are like 
you know, photorealist, very good at following grids, it will be. So, so yeah, us, you're not a sort of set it out on a grid type person. I have done in the past. I, I kind of had to, I've had to on a few occasions, so I can do that. Um, and, it, you know, I enjoy it, but one thing me and Mike really enjoyed was bouncing off each other. So, like, I would draw a character and he'd be like, oh, I'm going to draw this, or he would draw something and then I would respond. And it just actually made the piece more fun because it, it, it was a lot more organic. It, it was a lot more kind of um, intuitive, I guess. And I think that translated in, in the pieces that we have worked on together. There's that bounce off each other. And you can always look at the pieces we've worked on together and look at the ones we've worked on independently. And you can tell the difference, I think. Um, not saying the ones we've worked on independently aren't good. They are good but they're just worked in a different format. We've perhaps had a bit more of a plan of what we're doing on the ones we're working on independently because we've had to take on a larger area by ourselves. Mm. So you kind of have to almost have a bit more of a plan. That, that does freak a lot of people out, like just turning up. We did this, ex one of the biggest exhibitions I've ever worked on was with Mike in Peacock's Visual Art. It was called Feast Your Eyes and it was the entire gallery space. We just decided we wanted to draw on the entire gallery space. So one, two, three, four huge walls. And we gave ourselves like three weeks to do it in, which is nothing looking back. We were so sleep deprived by the end. We were just up scaffolding, pulling 12 hour shifts, living off pizza and beer. But that entire show was just, nothing was planned. We had nothing down even in the sketchbook before we started drawing. Because for some people that might be completely daunting. But you see that as the opposite. You see it as an exciting way to work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it was daunting as well, but it was fun. Yeah, at the time, we probably didn't think it. So you've uh, never come to the point where you've gone, oh, shit, I have no idea what we're going to do here. Um, yeah, like, yeah, we <laughs> guess we did sometimes. Uh, looking back, I mean, we started off, we, we took a wall each, and I drew a big tortoise and a burger. And Mike drew a big jelly bean bird of paradise. And then we were like, oh, right, what would go with that burger? Or what would go with that bird of paradise? And then, it, you know, and then we were like, let's put mountains of ice cream all over the floor. Let's, you know, so we just kind of went totally wild with it. But then I, I suppose in the, the sort of, in that kind of brief and the, the style that you guys have, mm. that, that approach is... It's great because yeah. it, it's what people are really looking for. That's it. I mean, it suited what we, we, when we worked as Hell Yeah, which was our identity, we did what we wanted to do. Um, you know, and, that, and that's very, that was very much our attitude. If people employed us and wanted us to work, we'd work to, to loose briefs, but we wouldn't change our style. We weren't going to do like abstract geometric, you know, we were going to do what we wanted to do. And that, that was really refreshing and it was really fun. Um, we don't do so much work anymore together, but you know, we both did really enjoy working together. And it gave us, as individuals, the confidence to then go off and do our own stuff, which is what we're doing now. Mm -hmm. So it was an important part, I think. If you can approach a wall and do it without any planning, then when you do have a plan, you're like, yeah, no bother. You know, I can plan this and I can do it. Yeah. It's funny, it's like um, confidence is something that keeps coming up again and again and again um, in the chats. And it's sort of like people, it sounds like people gain that confidence through repetition, through time and through honing their practice. Yeah. And that often at the start you don't, 
it's it's not something you realize mm. or think about really that if i just keep doing this then i will get better i will improve i will gain in confidence i'll yeah. be able to go and speak to more people or grow my network and it is a natural progression yeah it's it totally is it's just it's believing in yourself i guess and like i think a lot of people don't have enough belief to actually just go up and ask people hey can i can you pay me to paint your bar or can can I have that wall outside and can I paint on that, you know? A lot of people would be too scared to do that. And that's where most opportunities come from. A lot of the opportunities don't necessarily come from your portfolio or your talent or or even them knowing anything about you. That you know, where it comes from is you having the confidence to go up and take risks and do actually do something, make stuff. It doesn't matter if it's crap or not, just go and actually do it. And then you'll get better. Mm-hmm. Um See, I think that's, yeah, it's a huge part. And I, I think that's why I always enjoy collaborating with people as well. Because I think there's, a, a, it's always really fun because you push each other out of your, your comfort zone and you each take something different to the table. But there's also that almost safety net of working in numbers. <laughs> when in the early stages, it's quite daunting to be by yourself. But if you collaborate with people, you're going to have a blast doing it. You, as I say, you're going to learn different things from each other. But it's also safety in numbers. And, and you can work together and, and two people are stronger than one sometimes or three people stronger than two. And I think that's something a lot of creative people don't explore. They're very much, they've been bred to think, not bred, but in art school, it's almost that you're out for yourself. You know, everybody's, they don't push collaborative working, I think, in art school, not to my experience, enough and promote it enough. So it's something that a lot of people don't even think about doing. They're just so focused on making their own work and succeeding by themselves as an artist that they're missing out on just having fun and experiencing different ways of working so i think that's quite important building your confidence as well because mm-hmm. well one of the things when um before you decided to move into fleet collective yeah um you decided to go back to college <laughs> yeah i did <laughs> yeah that lasted all six weeks i think um, and do you think that was to, to do with confidence as well? I think it was to do with confidence. I think it was just a realisation, I don't know. I think for me, I've never been one person who's too embarrassed to say, you know, I'm pretty crap at this, I need to learn more. And I was getting more digital jobs. And I'm self-taught, as, as you know. <laughs> My digital practice is perhaps not where it should be. <laughs> so, um in order to make better digital work. I mean, I could make it to a point, but I really wanted to push my practice and my skill set. Um, and I don't really have much of an ego. So for me, it was no bother. A lot of people were like, oh, can't believe you're going back to college and being a student again. You can't be a professional arts illustrator and be at college. I'm like, Why not? Like, what's wrong with going, hey, I'm shit at this. I want to learn how to do this properly. So for me, that was, yeah, I, I decided I wanted to go back to college I'd never been to college because I went straight to art school, so I, d- I didn't really have any expectations of what it was going to be like. So I went back and was just really bored at the pace of work. And I don't mean that in a derogatory sense that I was above it. I think I, I was just used to working at a higher pressure zone, especially being freelance. And I, I was paying for it myself because I'd already been to art school. And, you know, I was going to class and they were saying, oh, you know how to do this already, so you just do something else. And, it just wasn't progressing perhaps. It just wasn't for me. Um, I was bored and when I'm bored, I'm not productive. I need to be pushed. And I, I didn't feel like I was being pushed hard enough. 
which is not the college's fault. That's just me personally. Mm-hmm. So I lasted a total of six weeks, <laughs> and then I dropped out, um, and I don't regret it because um, I've I've had some amazing experiences. But I do half me wishes I'd stuck in and learned some new skills. Um, but I'm just finding different ways to do that now. Like, you know, the guys at Fleet yourself, you know, have been helping me broaden my technological. Yeah, well, it's it's a nice environment to be in, and that yeah. there's a lot of people with a lot of different knowledge and skills. That's it. If you're all in the same place, it's only a couple of steps to your left or your right, and someone will know the answer, or at least know someone who will know the answer. That's it. I mean, it, and sometimes it's like, yeah, it's it's not the obvious things that you need to know. It might be something that's not even covered in general curriculum. Um, so yeah, so college was an interesting experience. I met some cool people in the short time that I was there. Um, but yeah, it was probably yeah not the best decision I ever made. <laughs> Adding on to my student loan that I'll probably never pay back. <laughs> yeah, we've all got one of them. Yeah, exactly. It's been ten years now, so I'm like, does it get written off? I don't know. I'm still waiting. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, one of the projects you've been working on recently, and I suppose it started in Aberdeen and has now sort of moved to Perth as the I can't remember the exact name of it, the Doors Project. Yeah, well, the Aberdeen Project was called the Painted Doors Project, <clears throat> and it just it has become known now as the Painted Door Project in Perth. But we, we haven't really given it an official name, to be honest. Uh, so basically, the Painted Door Project was a project <laughs> that Aberdeen inspired up in Aberdeen, put together. Um, it's been done in a few places. I think it's somebody told me it originated in Ireland, but I don't know how true that is. But it's happened in a few cities across the world. Um, so basically, they, you find a bunch of not necessarily disused doors, but doors that don't look too hot or in weird locations, and you get different artists to paint on them, and it gives the area a bit of a boom. It regenerates it slightly. It gets people to view their kind of surrounding areas in a different way. So I, I was fortunate enough to work on one in Aberdeen with a great bunch of artists. There's some really cool doors, so if anybody's ever up there, it's definitely worth checking out. Um, I think about 30 doors somebody said to me got done. So that's, you know, there's just a fair amount, and it's really cool because everybody's quite different. So I just thought that was a really fun, and the good thing about doors is that you can paint over them. It's not too offensive if you paint on a door. If somebody doesn't like it, they just paint over it. It's not like a wall where people seem to take great offence for some reason. If there's a shitty wall somewhere and somebody draws an amazing piece of artwork on it, they freak out. Um, whereas if it's in a door, I think people don't get too stressed out by that. They're like, oh, it's a door. It's okay. It's not too big. Um, so it's a nice way of easing public art, street art out there on the public forum without freaking people out too much. So I really kind of like that. So. Um, I approached my friend Eleanor Big, who's a textile designer in Perth, um, out in Creef, and said, you know, this is really cool. Do you want to work together on a few doors? Because I really like the style of her work. Um, she's Fun Makes Good. Right? She is, sorry, yes. I should probably say that her company is Fun Makes Good. <clears throat> so I'm a big fan of her work anyway, and um, I get on with her really well. So we just thought it'd be like a fun project. So we painted Tabery Gallery, and we painted their door first. And then the council approached us and commissioned us to paint the library and two doors in the museum and art gallery um so kind of we just completed the, the final door yeah um, on monday so a couple of days ago 
Again, that was a sort of mashup of your two styles. Yeah, so basically, it was quite. I quite enjoyed it because the first story was just pure pattern. So it was quite nice to me to go back to my complete abstract roots and focus on pattern and and not having any sort of literal illustration. And that was quite nice to get back to that. So we kind of, again, I think it freaked Eleanor out because she kind of said to me, should we have a plan? And I was like, oh, no, yeah. <laughs> so first time she'd kind of done anything outside and painted in that nature. So, you know, I think she was slightly stressed by my attitude to it. But then now she's used to it because she's like, what's the point of a plan? We'll just, we haven't, so we kind of planned the first one and the other three we just made up on the spot. Um, <clears throat> so that was really cool. Um, we did a bit of linear illustration on the final two. And yeah, so our plan is to, well, we've had a few meetings with the council, basically trying to get Perth City Council to give us some money so we can commission visiting artists to come and do a door each as well, as well as local artists. So the kind of big plan that we want to roll out is more public public art, street art, whatever. We want to do more murals. Uh, Eleanor's husband, Hamish Big, is a lighting designer, so we really want him to do some lighting pieces in the city centre. So really we've got this big ambitious plan where we want to transform Perth city centre. Um, and we want the council to pay us to do that. <laughs> it's easier said than done. It's ambitious. It's yeah. ambitious, because you know what councils are like with money for artists. Um, <laughs> and I guess it's educating as well. I mean, Perth are going for the city of culture bid at the moment, so that's been really interesting. So I lived in Aberdeen when Aberdeen were going for it, and we all know how successful that was. So it's been quite interesting to be in Perth uh, and see them going for the bid and kind of see their attitudes I think when cities go for city of culture, they almost have to embrace creativity and culture more for obvious reasons. So it's been quite interesting to see. I mean, they've always been supportive of what we're doing. I don't think, but I just think there's been that lacking of understanding how much artists need to live off, <laughs> how sometimes the creative industries don't make money, especially like grassroots galleries, essential. It's, it's educating them. They need to invest to get out. They can't expect artists to do everything for them and not put their hands in their pockets. So it's creating that dialogue and they are keen and there are there is a willingness there, but it's just educating them to understand why we think that public art's important and a creative culture and identity within the city is important. So although it seems like just paint on doors, it's it's actually a doorway, I guess so to speak, into something much bigger, a much bigger plan that we have for Perth. But it'd be great to see some of that sort of approach moved up the road a little bit into Dundee. Yeah, I mean, I've never really understood why there isn't here. I mean, obviously there are bits now that we're seeing, you know, develop, but Dundee to me seems like a total blank canvas in that sense. Why, why isn't there more street art? I think street art is a difficult one because it's still got this stigma attached to it that I've never really understood why people find it so offensive, why people go to the effort to create. As long as it's not, again, it's it's not it's not offensive, it's not vulgar, there's no swearing. I've never really understood why people go so up in arms about it. Um, it's definitely something I'd like to see happen more, especially in Dundee, because I'm here three days a week, you know, I come through here quite a lot with my family. There's so many buildings like Perth that are just sitting, doing nothing, and just painting the side of it would look awesome. Mm -hmm. So why not? I mean... Yeah, it would cost a few grand, but... Well, maybe it is that thing of, of starting small and then... Yeah. And, I mean, doors are the perfect thing to do that and then you can build upon it from there and people see the value in it and say, oh, well, maybe we could do a bit more yeah. and a bit more and a bit more. Exactly. Yeah. So maybe there's potential to roll out the door, the door project in Dundee. I don't know. I guess that's something that could potentially be discussed. 
and figure it out. So talking about collaborations, so me and you worked together was it end of last year end of last year yeah uh, sweatshop yeah well we sort of met Petra Kucha um, yeah a while before that um, two years ago I think it was yeah yeah two it was years. the night that we both did our Petra Kucha talks I think yeah two years ago yeah yeah and then eventually got around to actually doing something together which was yeah. an idea that had been floating around my mind forever yeah. um, <laughs> and finally got around to doing it which was the wrapping paper so yeah the, sort of illustrated wrappers um which again for me was a bit of a, a step away from my comfort zone and that mm-hmm. i'd done very little print and illustrative work but it was that release that bit of fun yeah um, totally and it was just yeah let's just do it smash it out and see what happens yeah type thing, see if we can sell it totally um, once again that organic <laughs> last minute <laughs> but it worked you know it was really fun i think for me, it was it was a first as well in the sense of like making a product like that, mm. like that more craft based. Yeah. Actually, hands on making something rather than sending off to a client or a printer to do. Mm. We did it all ourselves. Yeah, because like I'd never done any screen printing before either, <laughs> yeah. and then we spent several days up at Peacock's, yeah. just sweating it out. Totally. I mean, it's I realize as a fine artist, I think I'm kind of used to that, so I kind of enjoy getting my hands dirty and. Uh, and although at the time you're like, God's sake, it's hard work, you know, and there's so many things that can go wrong, and there's so much cleaning and blah, blah, blah. But it's a totally different experience than sitting on your computer or sitting on your iPad. Yeah, well, it was like coming out of the print studio and having a black bin liner filled with 50 rolls of yeah. wrapping paper being like, if I fall in a puddle, yeah. that's like... Or if a, it rains. Yeah, that's yeah. a lot of money down the pan. Totally. Still. But, I mean, I suppose you could say the same about a laptop, but... But. Yeah, it was another, it was just like, I, again, I think that's, it was something we did on the side, which I think is another important thing that you have to do as an artist, is especially if you're working on commercial projects, is to have your own projects as well, where you can, you know, we all get bored of just not, well, not bored necessarily, but when you're making work for other people, you're neglecting your own practice, and mm-hmm. you do kind of fall into this cycle of just doing what other people want rather than doing what you want. And, and I can take the fun out of it a bit. So it was, it's always good to have side projects like that that you can actually enjoy and, um, you know, have a lot of fun with and go, and go a bit nuts with it because you're not having somebody going, oh, this needs 17 amendments or we've actually changed your mind on this. You're kind of your own boss on it. So it's really cool. Yeah, it was for me, it was like that sort of release where you could yeah. do what you want and we smashed out a whole load of cards that were actually really quite popular. Totally, but... who knew? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was well. reaffirming. <laughs> <laughs> it was a really positive experience, mm-hmm. and, and uh, you know, it wasn't even overly expensive no. to do as well. So it kind of opened my eyes up to kind of that side of things as well. I think. Yeah, but that's also the sort of plan going forward is to build up that, which is now sort of termed slobs and blobs marketplace, if you like, for what I mean, whatever we end up producing, yeah, will go on there. But yeah, you've sort of come up with a new project as well to tie into that. Yes, yeah, so um, my new project is one I've been sitting on for a while. So as you know, um, I own a risograph machine, so I've, I've always been wanting to do like a series of collaborative prints. As I said earlier, I love collaborating with people because it makes me think in a different way. Um, and it just exposes me to different way the artists work and it changes my work if I have to react to them. So I really enjoy collaborating with people. So I've been wanting to work on a collaboration of prints 
basically going from the letters A to Z, I've got themes that I've removed from a Black Alicious song, um, Alphabet Aerobics. So that's where my themes have come from, and I've chosen a bunch of different artists and designers from all different backgrounds. We've got people who focus on typeface, people who are you know, digital designers, people who are animators, people who are painters, people who are printmakers, people who are, you know, all different types of backgrounds of creatives. Um, I've given a brief to, they're responding, and then I'm responding to them, and then we're doing it on the risograph machine. So it's a two color print. So for those people who aren't familiar with risograph printing, they use a soy-based ink, which is slightly opaque. So if you layer different colors, you can create different color combinations, or if you use different colors of paper, the ink you print on top will then be changed by the, the paper below. Um, so two color print on A3, and we'll sell them through swabs and blobs once they're done. Um, so I'm getting a few inches now, so hopefully we should have them up and running within the next month, have a few on the website. And affordable, again, it's making the additions, they'll all be in additions of 30, which means that 30 of each print will be made and I'll split. So I'll keep 15 and the artist or designer, whoever, who has done the print with me will get 15. So they can do what they want with their 15, but we're going to sell the 15 that I keep on slobs and blobs at an affordable price. So people can buy a decent piece of artwork for not that much money. Mm. It'll cover, you know, it won't be like 1p. But <laughs> It'll be affordable, which I think, again, as I stated, I think it's important. I like to make art and design accessible. I don't think only the rich and wealthy should be the ones that get to enjoy. I think everybody should be able to enjoy art and design and be able to afford good art and design. So, see, so yeah, that's kind of at the forefront as well. Again, with Slobs and Blobs, we were kind of like that, you know? We, we had very reasonably priced £1 for a card. Yeah. Bang it. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so that was, that, that was the plan to yeah. go forward with that. But in terms of the so the, the actual printing of it mm -hmm. and the risograph machine, which is now in residence in Fleet Collector. It is, we got it up. We're never removing it <laughs> to the five people it took to get out the stairs. <laughs> I, well, I didn't really do anything to lift it, you did, but <laughs> I don't have to watch that again. <laughs> but so you, you're going to run that as a sort of commercial venture as well, if you like. Yeah. Yeah, um, so I'm going to run that as Taco Press. So Taco with a K, not with a C. But I do love tacos all, you know, as well as Taco. So Taco means octopus in Japanese. So the rice machines originate in Japan. So I really wanted to have a nod in the name to its roots. Uh, so Octopus Inc. That was my obvious kind of connection there. So I'm going to run that again. I really wanted to run an affordable print setup where people could come and pay as you go almost they can pay to use a risograph machine or if they're not confident in doing it they can pay me to produce their prints for them and um, we've got a variety of colors to use we've got six colors for the risograph machine now which i'm expanding all the time but yeah it's just uh, riso is slightly different from kind of inkjet printing in the sense that it's never well it can sometimes be but it's very rare that it's 100 percent accurate it's always slightly off register which means that sometimes the lines don't perfectly match up it's just the nature of, of which the machine works, um, but it's also, it sounds like a negative, but it's it's actually just one of its quirks, and I think that's why a lot of people enjoy using them, because I guess that it's called what we call happy accidents. You don't, you can't really plan it. You need to be a bit more open, you need to be more loose. Um, using the machine in itself is more like, I think it's more like screen printing. You create a negative, everything has to be printed in grayscale, 
you scan it in in grayscale and then it comes out in color so you have to do every color as a different negative so you have to layer them up which is very similar to the method that we use screen printing and um, so i kind of like that more hands-on vibe to it and i think again that when you see the prints they come out more like fine art pieces of work than they do inkjet or you know what you'd expect from a high quality design printing uh, studio so it's a really fun way to do things so yeah, if people want to use it, they can. Um, and much lower cost compared to yeah. like, screen printing. Much lower, much lower. We, we rattled out 25 prints today in under half an hour, you know, double-sided, two-colour on each side. You couldn't do that screen printing um, unless you were it was an electronic screen printing bed. Hmm. So much quicker, much cheaper. And the colours, not necessarily screen printing, because with screen printing you can achieve really good colours because you're mixing the inks. But inkjet, the colours in rice are a lot stronger. The inks sit on top of the paper, so they're more prone to smudging. But the inks, inks are a lot nicer than inkjet. You can get a much, a much richer experience. Yeah, definitely. So, if anyone does want to get in touch with you or see your work, mm -hmm. uh, how would they do that? So you can go to my website, which is kmg yeah so yeah y e a h dot com. Um, my Instagram is like at. Uh, Hang on, what's that? <laughs> I never know what that thing on the floor is called. Underscore. Underscore. KMG, yeah, underscore. Uh, Twitter is just at KMG, yeah. And my email address is info at KMG, yeah, dot com. Great. Yeah. Thank you. No worries. And that was episode 15 with Katie. Big thanks to her for coming on. I uh, really appreciate her taking the time. If you haven't already checked out her work, please do uh, go and visit her Instagram. She's just started doing these little animated GIFs and they are hilarious. So definitely go and check them out. Also, if you are interested in the Resograph printing, give Katie a shout. Uh, you can go to tacopress.com and all the details are on there on how to get in touch with her and the sort of inks and everything else that, that's available. And if you did enjoy the episode, please send us a little tweet. And until next week, goodbye.